بیایم شام تاو سوشام تاو از کانتا و کانتا توی از کانتا سوی دان بسیت تام ادیشن دان هر و بوسی دان این ویتوری پارک در یک استیج در Point Seas Festival, which is coming back this year, so I hope you will get asked back for that one. These guys spoke, are they? I remember. <laughs> um, so those will eventually get edited, and, and we put on the, the program that, uh, that we're going to edit one every week for the rest of it. This one might actually come out in your lifetimes, guys. <laughs> this podcast. Uh, and I'm just going to hand over to Afsana, who's been really the project um, leader on this one, and we're really excited. I'm really excited to hand it over. Um, to, to someone new who's got a bit of fresh energy and her design skills and her sort of uh, getting you guys together for tonight is we're really proud of her. So uh, I just want to hand over to Afsana for a few words about herself. I'm sorry, I have no stage presence, so excuse me. <laughs> um, my name is Afsana and I work with Rupert in the School of English and Drama. Um, I'm pretty new to Queen Mary. I've uh, been here about six months now. Um, I'm, I second Rupert on that. I'm really proud to work here and not just because it's only five minutes down the road from my house, but um, everything Queen Mary stands for, like its history with providing education to women and um, working class communities. Um, we also have the decolonized QMU World movement, which is happening and it's really popular. Um, I think it's really great that we have um, you know, we have a space to unite marginalized groups um, and wh- whatever you are, uh, whatever gender, ethnicity, sexuality, disability, and to come um, together and have conversations about it. So I'm really glad you guys came, especially in this weather. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you to our lovely speakers for being here as well. Um, and I really hope you enjoy. Um, and yeah, just in case I haven't told you already, there's colouring pages over there if you want to de-stress. Um, I'm also a mental health first aider, so um, like Rupert, so if you want to have a conversation, just reach out to me. Um, you'll probably get loads of emails from me anyway if you're a student in Queen Mary already. But yeah, so without further ado, I'll just um, hand over to Rupert. We've got some special guests. I'm really excited to welcome them. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to welcome um, Neil Connolly. He's the artistic director for the Crystal Maze, if anyone's heard of it. Uh, um, the Tropic Zero. Hi. Yeah, so if you've um, not been, it's an amazing interactive experience. Um, but I know Neil a little bit from um, the days of uh, doing kind of immersive theatre. And I remember there being an amazing show called Heist, which was um, about robbing a bank. And um, basically all of the audience getting involved with robbing a bank, which sounds like quite a fun way to spend an evening. Um, and he's also a um, performer and, and he uh, was created a common show called Lamplighters. Uh, so I'm sure he'll talk about these things, but if we can just extend a warm welcome and a round of applause to Neil. Thank you, Rupert. Hello. Hello. Oh, good. Well done. I work in interactive theatre, so there's always like, hello. Hello. Well done. We're all alive. Good. Uh, right. Ten minutes. Good Lord. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story, and it's in three parts, like all good stories. And some people think, some people will title the story with a lot of courage. I don't. <laughs> um, I title it with blind naivety. Um, I'm going to tell you how I did everything wrong and how I got here. Uh, if that's okay with you, is that all right? Good. Um, I've occasionally had to do things like this where I speak about pathways into the arts 
Um, and mine has not been natural. I don't think any pathway into the arts is entirely natural in any kind of way. Um, I arrived in this country with nothing but a phone number and a sleeping bag and about 500 pounds in my pocket. And that was it. Uh, and I set about doing some very, very, very silly things. I was lucky enough to be involved in the National Theatre Connections Festival as a performer with my youth theatre. And I really liked the vibe and the environment. And they asked me to come back and help on the festival. Uh, it was around about the time that I had to decide what I wanted to do with my life, uh, which maybe some people in the room are currently trying to do before. Like I had to decide if I was going to university or not. Um, and I was currently having a lot of rows with my dad about various different things. Um, mainly because I was working as a bookie on a horse track and not going to school. Uh, and he was quite annoyed about this and he really wanted me to go into business and I didn't want to do that. And I wanted to get as far away from my father as I possibly could. So I applied for drama school. Uh, <laughs> uh, I went over for my auditions for drama school. The first round were fine. Second round, they invited me back over. I had to fly from Dublin to uh, London. And for the second and third rounds, there were group auditions. It was the final one. I asked if they could move it because the day of the uh, second and third round auditions to get into university was on the same day as my maths exam, which is a uh, leaving certificate. It's the equivalent of your A-levels. Uh, they wouldn't move it because it's a group audition. Therefore, meaning that if I did not attend my maths exam in Ireland for my final exams, legally, I was not allowed to go to university in Ireland. And I would have just failed the entire curriculum, which is 14 years worth of education. I talked to my principal. My principal obviously said, do the exams. I talked to my history teacher, who was his sister. Uh, <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very small environment in Ireland. And she went, go for it, Neil. What else have you got to lose? Um, so I did. I flew uh, to uh, London and I sat in an audition room and I got through the second round. The third round is an interview. And I'd previously been speaking to the head of the course uh, for this uh, acting course that I was trying to get into at Rose Bruford University, which is just on the edge of London down in Kent. And um, I sat down and at this exact moment in my life, I was 17 years old. I was nearly about to turn 18. And I was thinking about all of my friends back at home all sitting their maths exams, which is really important, guys. Uh, and I was sat here pretending to be a tree and the colour black uh, to try and get into this acting course. And uh, I sat down for my interview and the head, of course, uh, uh, leaned back in his chair and he pointed at his colleagues with other tutors on the course and just went, uh, Neil, could you please tell my colleagues uh, what it is that you're missing to be here today? And I explained what I just explained to you, maths exams, everything, blah, 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 blah. And I got to the end of it and I looked them dead in the eye and I just went, eggs, basket. <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> 17 years old, and I was that stupid. Uh, and that's why it's not courage. It was blind naivety. And I think they let me in after that. I was the youngest person on my course by far. Uh, the, the nearest person to me was four years older than me. They'd already had a degree. Everyone on my course already had a degree. And I had I just turned 18. Um, so they let me in. Uh, so that was my first bit of blind courage and blind naivety, which is the first section of my story. I went through my university. Uh, I had a really lovely time uh, at points. I was desperately poor. Uh, I didn't have any funding. I didn't receive any funding from the Irish government because I was getting a degree in England. I didn't receive any funding from the English government because I was Irish. Um, and uh, yeah, the lovely thing the Irish government told me that they wouldn't recognise my degree because they didn't see it having any worth. Uh, and I therefore would not be feeding back into the Irish uh, cultural economy. 
hilarious. Uh, really fun thing about Ireland is if anyone here is Irish uh, or not, uh, you might know this, Ireland has a great thing of all the artists leave uh, and then as soon as you get any kind of success, they all go, please come back, please come back, please come back. Like Samuel Beckett lived in Paris for most of his life. Um, they tried to kick me out a few times, won't go into it, some very nefarious things. But I was desperately poor. If I couldn't make rent, I'd play poker. It's a true story. Um, it's how I would pay my rent at the end of every month. Uh, at one point I was so poor, all I, could, all I could afford was some stamps so I could send my mother a birthday card, uh, some cup of soups and a loaf of bread. That was it. That was all I could afford until I got paid for my weird little bar job about a week later. Um, it was a rough ride. Uh, it wasn't easy, but I managed to get out of it. And now comes into the real blind courage. I left university. I came here with no friends. I knew no one. I had a phone number for the university that I was going to so that I could have somewhere to sleep. I had 500 pounds in my pocket. It's now three years later. I've now got a degree. What do I do? I made friends and I relied on a network of people. Um, they were just like me in the sense that we didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, there was a girl named Natalie and a guy named Joe and they'd set up a theater company called The Lab Collective. Uh, and they set this up just before they left university. And the three of us sat around the kitchen table because we lived together at the time. We kind of, that's how incestuous we kind of got. Um, Natalie Joe actually ended up in a relationship. That's the end of the story. Sorry, guys. Uh, uh, and we decided at that point before we left university, the only way we were going to survive was by setting up a theatre company and making our own work. No one was going to listen to us. No one was going to support what we were going to do because the work that we were going to make was overtly political um, and we were going to try and smash down some doors. And that was what we did for... Mm, I worked with that company for 10 years, I think, nine years. Uh, we made uh, socio-political and socio-economic work. Um, I graduated in 2007, 2008 was when the economic crash happened and the world went to shit. Um, so what was I going to talk about? I talked about what I knew. I talked about the fact that I had no money. I'd lived in poverty for years. Um, no, I had to gamble my way to get through. I had to bet on horses. I had to play poker. Um, I had to do a lot of very strange things in order to survive, um, which is why I'm not a great role model, because I've done it all wrong. Um, so we started writing about what we knew. I made a show called Matador, uh, which was all about the economic crash of 2008, but also I would talk to the audience. We had a very small circle, not much bigger than that table. 30 people would stand around the edge of it. I put, put their toe on the line and I talked to them about their debt. I talked to them about mortgages, credit card loans, loans for a car, any debt that they had accumulated. I talked about the feel of money, the literal feel of money. At one point in the show, I take a fiver out and throw it on the floor. Uh, sometimes people would pick it up and I'd force them to give it back to me. Um, the whole time I'm marrying their debt against how economics works, economics 101. And it's such a shame because in the last 10 years, I've seen many, many other shows or films kind of come out which talk about very, very similar things. And it's just about trying to get that message out there to a wider public of realizing how the world works, especially when it comes to economics. Last night I watched a film called The Laundromat, which is on Netflix. Has anyone seen it? Yeah? Super weird film. Super weird film. It does get very, very didactic at points, but it's a really interesting uh, way of looking at the world. Um, 
those kind of middle years, which is the middle part of my story, I uh, I'm probably, hopefully one day, might write an autobiography if I'm going to be that pretentious. Uh, I would call those first 10 years, uh, the first volume of my three-volume autobiography, uh, will be called London's Coldest Buildings, A Life in Fringe Theatre. Um, yeah. Um, because in those 10 years, that I, uh, just after I left university, but during and post-university, I worked in every single, I did, I made theatre and art. I worked in the cabaret scene, I worked in improv comedy, I was an MC, uh, I worked a lot in the party scene, raves, those two people over there, which are where is shit theatre. Yeah, they're friends of mine, lovely, lovely people. Uh, I spent many, many nights in weird cabaret bars with them. Uh, doing very, very strange shows. And we kind of, through this period, we all gathered around uh, pockets, collectives. One of them was called Theatre Delicatessen, who's is a registered charity who I ended up starting working for. Um, I've since left that company. But our remit as a charity was to take over derelict buildings that are awaiting redevelopment in central London. Huge buildings, which had a landlord, but they're empty and they're doing nothing. So my job was to walk up to multi-millionaires we're like, hello, give me your building and you're going to give it to me for free. And I'm going to tell you why. Because your building's empty while you're awaiting planning permission to knock it down and turn it into a bunch of flats. And while your building's empty, you're paying a million pounds in council tax per year for an empty building. Give it to me and I'll get you an 80% reduction in council tax. I've just saved you £800,000. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it seems audacious, but it's true. And that's genuinely what I did. My job was to take money from rich people so that I could pay for art. This is how I get onto the third part of my story. My job was to take their buildings from them and they could not interfere with me in any way whatsoever. The deal was, if, I, if they wanted me to move out, they give me three months notice and I kick up no fuss whatsoever. I would just pick up everything that I had and move. And we did that for years. We took over several different buildings. I mean, some of the like, like billionaire landowners, really, really strange. Um, but obviously we're saving their money. We're not making the money, we're just saving the money. But what do I get? I get a building, I get a studio, I get a theater, I get a bar, I get a cafe. I get whatever I want to build. Coming back to referencing, it was one of the shows that uh, Rupert saw, uh, which is a show called Heist, which I made with a company called Difference Engine. Um, Anyway, that was the wild west of how we kind of got into this whole interactive theatre scenario. We had a 47,500 square foot building and we convinced our audiences to break into the building, plot a heist, steal a £22 million painting and get out without being caught. We had a staff of eight uh, when we originally started it. The show was supposed to run for three weeks and lose £10,000. Not my money. I'm not insane. I like making money. Um, it ended up running for 10 months and it made that company quite a good bit of capital, which afforded them to work for the next four years until they eventually shut down because they went bankrupt. Different story. <laughs> totally different story. Um, and we all kind of gathered together and we were all still desperately poor. Uh, not really making a lot of money, but we were making a lot of work. And that was what was more important to us, was trying to make as much art as we possibly could and just push it out there and get people to see it, which is why we took over these buildings. Um, because no one was going to give us money. Nobody would give us anything. The Arts Council wouldn't touch us. In fact, the Arts Council still won't touch us. If you turn around to the Arts Council and go, yo, I'm going to make an immersive theatre show, they laugh you out the door. 
because they can't quantify it in terms of the numbers. They can't quantify it in terms of, you can't really develop a script and say, here, this is what the actors are gonna say, or this is my vision, because it's all about this connection and these moments. We call it the importance of the moments, standing between people. So we had to find a way to do it ourselves, which was creating our own businesses, uh, and developing our own products, and finding our own spaces to perform in. That was 10 years. Uh, about, <laughs> Three to four years ago. One minute? Good, I got one minute. See, one minute to the last three to four years of how I got everything wrong and why I'm the worst person to speak and set the tone. In the last three to four years, I stopped doing political theatre. And instead, what I decided to find was my old passion. My old passion was for board games and jigsaw puzzles. So I decided to start making commercial theatre. And I ended up working in a corporate entity, which is called The Crystal Maze. And it's amazing, it started as a Kickstarter, because why? We didn't have any money. What we did was we found an empty building and we put a Kickstarter online and asked for half a million pounds in 28 days. We ended up raising 956,000 pounds in 28 days, which was enough capital to fund the first six months of the show. Four and a half years later, I still work there. I direct the show. I've got uh, 85 comedians, actors that basically sit on my books. That's my cast. We've also got a staff of 150 people uh, across two sites. Um, yeah, it's a big old beast. And I got everything wrong. But the one thing that I did get right is that I go to work every single day and I sit in a building, which is a playground for adults. And the lovely thing is, is when I hear someone trying to solve a puzzle and they get it wrong and they either tear people apart or there's a huge celebration of joy. They're still getting it wrong, but at least they're paying me to do it. Thank you. Thank you. Cool, so yeah, what, what amazing beginnings. We're just talking about almost like millions of pounds. We've heard a bit of rumbling from the tube. We've heard all the sounds of my land, which are, you know, all the sirens and everything going on, and some amazing words about how to start something from nothing and get there and start something big. If you, if you know anything about the Trocadero and where, where these big sites are based, like, they're incredible projects and right in the centre of London, places that, you know, if you went to an estate agent, you, they'd kind of laugh you out of the building. So it's kind of amazing words to hear about. And, and next up, we're really excited to welcome back um, Elliot. So Elliot Ajay Ajay, I, I, I thought I would go for it. I've been practicing, and I'm terrible. So, so tell me how I should say Ajay 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 Ajay. I'll get it eventually. I'm really sorry about it. Daily at the end, the longest name in all of existence. Well, we're so happy to welcome him back. He's a, a Quimeri alumni. Um, and he's been writing a little bit for us lately, so um, on our blog. So have a look and um, search his name. It's on the paper. If you need uh, help to spell it, like, like my name, people like that. So he's an amazing um, spoken word artist. Uh, we've got a video, I think, um, Afsana, would you mind helping with video? Um, and we're hoping sound will magically work. But if not, I'm sure you can talk us through it. Um, so yeah, he's a spoken word artist, actor, director. He worked on lots of sort of big projects, lots of smaller projects, and um, workshops and that kind of thing. So I'll, without further ado, I'll introduce you to Elliot, and we'll try and get a video working as well. So maybe, do you want to show that again? Yeah, cool. I'll have you. So we can welcome Elliot. <laughs> okay, um, I'll talk through it. This is winter solstice. 
The Precipice of a Dream. It's my first uh, book, graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, I'm a published author. Oh, this one. I'm a published author. Um, I write plays, poetry, opera. I'm working on a commission at the moment for the VNA. Um, I've worked with Coca-Cola, MTV, hosting shows. I performed when the Olympics was here. Of course, I took advantage of that. Performed throughout the games then, uh, TEDx, and I'm very happy to be here as well. So, um, so hopefully we get this on camera. Thank you. Um, I thought I would start with a poem, spoken word piece. And this is a piece that I wrote and first performed when I was here a little while ago, but um, I remember it, so I'm going to perform it for you now. It's called Sponge. As a sponge takes in water, so I soaked up the abuse. I did more than grin and bear it. I would smile and wear it. Turn the cheek and make a good eye blind to it. I'd... Take the hit and lay struck like a match. While the fuse of my soul was lit, silently burning my yearning for the path I saw as true, trying to follow that yellow brick road whilst walking a tight rope of tedium all the while in a haze of the purest rage. For every two steps forward, I'm shoved five steps back by a society trying to label me. Wearing a hoodie in the winter, I'm a thug. But when I went to buy that hoodie, I was a customer. But that's the world in which we live, Elliot. Take it, accept it. I tried to take it, but I can't accept it. So I'm trying to make it the way I need it to be, and that's just equal. And that's what the stage represents to me. A better place for every race to come together as one and drink in God's grace. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's really, oh wow, it's so weird seeing my photo pop up on this week. It's weird. Like, um, I Googled myself recently because I'm doing a few more things and um, my address came up as well as many pictures of me, which was terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I've moved, so don't do it, don't do it. But um, yeah, just a lot of stuff came up, which was exciting and quite scary. But um. How did I get to that place? As I said, I've done quite a few things and I started here. Well, I came to university not having a clue what I wanted to do other than to have fun and grow at the same time. Uh, I got into a few universities, I checked them out. When I came here, I, as was said earlier, it was the vibe that really got me. I like to work with the course, of course, otherwise that wouldn't work. But the vibe was, it was really, really fun. There was some good en energy with the people. The tutors were approachable. And when I actually started to study here, to engage in debates, conversations, and just, a, just that freedom to study my own and then come with my own opinion rather than the teacher telling me, this is what you need for the test. I was able to say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. I totally disagree or agree, whatever. And just to have some fun, you know, bringing my points across and being able to do that here. Um, I was on the basketball team. I was on the rugby team. I went to pretty much every party that I could. And I made sure to have a great time here because I still had no idea what I wanted to do. I just, like I say, I just wanted to learn, grow and have a good time doing it. Got my degree. And then I left, and as probably a lot of people will tell you, like I 
just had no idea what I was going to do next. And so I went to Spain to teach basketball to little kids and try and learn some Spanish. I didn't learn much Spanish, but I did have a really good time. Came back home, ended up working in HMV for a bit, like doing, I, don't know, I was working in a pub first of all, which is pretty good. I made like a hundred week in tips, a hundred pounds a week just in the tips, as well as whatever I was getting paid, because you know I was nice to people, that was fun. When the pub closed down, um, I had to get another job. I got a job the next day working in HMV. I was a Christmas temp. I thought, okay, wicked. They put me in a games department. It's not what my degree was, but you know, I thought I can have some fun here still while I figure out how I'm going to use that degree because my nan told me I have to, and I will. Um, so working in HMV as a Christmas temp in the games department, I was a top salesperson in my department because I really love games. After Christmas, you have an interview so they can tell you whether or not they're keeping you. Of course they were keeping me. I was a top salesperson in any team. So I smiled and sat there as the manager walked into the room. And he said, uh, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? I thought, yes, we're not keeping you. I was like, wow, I had to, I had to keep that smile on my face. Like I, I was like, knew it. You know, not a clue. I was like, I was skateboarding to work at the time because I had no money. I love skateboarding, but I would have taken the bus at that time. <laughs> I mean, I was tired. Um, it was, do you eat, pay rent and council tax and travel to work on the bus or do you skateboard? So I was skateboarding. When I lost the job, I was like, wow, okay. Now I'm definitely going to lose my home. Um, I went to my grandmother's like, nanny, um, what are we going to do here? Yeah. And she was like, okay, now you got to get a proper nine to five. I was like, oh no, sorry, nanny. Um, I know you love me, but you are not going to live your life to make me happy. And so I have to. I thought if I could lose everything, um, just trying to keep it going, I may as well be willing to risk everything for what I actually want. And like I said, when I was here, I got to find myself as an artist. I got to find myself as a scholar or yeah, the, the teacher later on that I ended up becoming. Um, I got to realize that I needed a sense of freedom. And so I became a freelancer because I, am, I know I'm not the type of person that can go to the same place every day and deal with the politics of the same building when they all have them. Lovely people. But I knew I needed to be in different places. Throughout my career, I've been able to um, teach, work, and or perform for over London, Bristol, uh, Faro, Portugal, uh, parts of Spain, um, Ghana as well. Yeah, I can't believe I nearly forgot that one. Ghana, and um, I teach at the Brit School every Tuesday, but as much as I love it, I couldn't do it more than one day a week because I like my freelancing. When I first started teaching, that really wasn't what I wanted to do. But like I said, I was at a point now where I had no money. I'm risking it performing. I'm enjoying my performance, but nobody's paying me. And then somebody approaches me from the Lyrics Theatre in Hammersmith because um, to get where I am, I just kind of had to take every opportunity that I saw. If I heard something on the radio, boom, I was going to go there and, you know, try and get involved. If I saw it on TV, internet, I was looking everywhere, reading the Daily Star, like there's sections and I was reading and trying to find anything and everything to get involved, any open mic. Here I am, I'm ready, we've got to get this done. I was seen and asked if I wanted to work with young people. My first thought was a memory of my favourite teacher. She told me one day I'd be a teacher and I laughed. I said, if the kids are anything like me, somebody's getting a slap. But 
I haven't hit anyone. Um, the kids have been insane, magical, incredible geniuses. They've taught me so much. I've worked with five to 85 year olds all over the world and just to engage with different people, to laugh and create with groups of people you wouldn't expect to meet in your everyday life. That's been absolutely amazing for me. And when I first started to teach, I was working with um, young people that were much like me when I was younger. I was quite hard to reach. I was, before I came to university, I wasn't try, really trying to engage very much with my education. And so, but I realized it was about me and that I wanted to work on myself and any goals I had weren't going to be achieved for me. You know, I might fail. I failed many times, but the furthest I can now fail is published author. And that's because I put everything, you know, I put absolutely, I think many people will tell you, you can get anything you want. And I don't quite believe that, but I do believe you can have anything you put your soul into. And I absolutely throw my soul into my work because it allows me to express. It allows me to play, like I said, it allows me to create and learn and grow all over the world. I mean, when, like I said, one of the connections I had with these young people was um, their disengagement and disenfranchisement with the system or with school and, and authority. And so I was angry about a few things. I, I still am angry about the way certain things work in the system, but I found a way to get that out and a way to work creatively with it. So I'll give you another piece. It's called Pissed Off. I'm really happy now, but still. I'm pissed off. And I'm pissed off that I'm pissed off again. I, I want to tell a friend, but stoic, I'm stoic. So I'll sew it in rhythm and tattoo the rage into pages of paper skin. Yes, I'm pissed off. And still pissed off that I'm pissed off again. I, I, I try to tell a friend, the stoic, I said I was stoic, and so now I'm sewing the holes in my soul with a poem. I, 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 fed my confessions to the pen. I, I, bled my confessions through a pen. For the gift of infinite ink and unlimited syllable string, I thread heart song through rib cage with every note I pen to paper, pen and paper, plain and simple. Yes, like paper planes, it's simple. But origami can't turn this page into a lump. So I fold my breasts and ink blots and watch as the page inhales my exhalation. Typos and chain letters, emancipating palpitation because my fucking heart can't take any more frustration. And if it breaks, the shards will tear my cerebral status resulting in shame through displays of insane behavior because how? Can the flame of the future burn its foundations? This game is one of patience and sainthoods. But I am not a saint. And I have run out of patience. I'm pissed off. So I am taking this time and space to exhale that. Thank you. So thanks, Maria. Um, and we'll keep moving on to me as we like to do in uh, show and tell. Uh, so we're moving on to our next speaker, who is Ms. Kimberly and uh, Kim. Um, I'm lucky enough to have seen 
uh, recently speak uh, event at is it Barbican? Yeah. Um, around queer history and clubbing and around nightlife for queer people and it was really interesting to see her insights around um, the kind of history of the trans uh, queer communities um, in London and she's lived through it and been there and um, been an amazing performer and spirit in the scene for so long for me so I'm really delighted to have her here and yeah if we can welcome Miss Kimberly. As a marginalised member of this society, it struck me. We really don't know each other. If we did, there would be more love and respect for our fellow homo sapiens, racism, transphobia, bipolar, biphobia, and bullying wouldn't be so prevalent. As humans, we intend to engage with people who are like-minded, attracted to same religion, ethnic backgrounds, etc. We work side by side with members of different communities. We like public transport together. We live next to each other. We believe the same, we eat the same, we pray the same, we breathe the same, we make love the same. And still, we don't know each other. Intersectionality is a word that is being used more often. It forces you to understand that life is evolving. Marginalized people are evolving. You're led to believe in propaganda about marginalized communities, forcing conspiracies which create hate. We say that love wins. It does. But not enough. Sometimes, sometimes, and notice I say sometimes, we may go to church and listen to the gospel being delivered in a magical setting. The act of perceiving sound, music to one's ears, but there is always hate spoken about in a theological manner, a manner with influence, energy, power, intensity, and control. As a trans woman, I felt compelled to bring more visibility and education concerning my community. I wanted to empower members of my community, help with their self-worth, show the world how beautiful, kind, professional, and at peace they can be. I want my community to be a part of society with no antipathy, malice, or regret. My name is Kim Tatum, a.k.a. Miss Kimberly. I'm an actress and a cabaret artist. I'm also the ambassador of Pride, AIDS Memorial, AIDS Memorial UK, and I'm also the patron of Clinic Q. I am the founder and director of Miss Kimberly's Live, a trans-led production, a trans-led production company highlighting trans, non-binary, and intersex persons. We did our first show this September at the mayor's office in London. We made history as the first trans organization to take over City Hall with a fashion show and performers. 
The event, of course, was a huge success. But as a Black trans woman doing such a high-profile event did come with its challenges. Karen Franklin, MBE, was my mentor. Kaza Rose, my operations director. Two high-powered cis women working as allies to help improve our community. The night started with a VIP room full of people networking, vibrant conversation, and of course, champagne. The view was spectacular overlooking the River Thames with a stunning sunset. The show was held in the famous Chambers Room. Kenny Combs, a trans rapper, opened the show with this poetry that took you on a journey of his transition and the struggles he has faced along the way from homeless, taking drugs to self-harming, and finally, evolution. His story captured the hearts of the audience, but also set the bar for the fashion show. The models bravely, confidently strutted down the catwalk. The models were of all ages, sizes, and ethnic backgrounds. Famous singer Sean King, who is most noted for making the music for the L Word, took to the stage with his song entitled Champion. One of our runners up for Pride, is Pride in London, which is a talent show for um, gay pride. Andre Giovanni hit the stage singing a bogey, a bogey to upbeat sounds to really get the crowd moving. Did that come out right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, who wrote this? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> On this night, I just didn't empower the trans community or educate the masses. Money was raised for Clinic Q, which I patron of. Clinic Q is a well-being and health service for the trans and non-binary community. The night was hosted by Sabah Shanri. Sabah is a transgender Muslim who co-founded Trans Pride Brighton in 2013. Clothing and accessories were provided by Wandsworth Oasis Cherry Shop. Since its foundation in 1989, Wandsworth Oasis has provided support to and challenge stigma towards those living with HIV. Makeup and hair was managed by Gathra Lozano, the head of BAM Fashion. Gathra is a prolific celebrity makeup artist whose work in fashion, advertising, TV, and the music industry. Gathra began his career as the original Max Singer makeup artist and the ambassador for Makeup Forever before starting a successful freelance career. Gatha has worked in fashion shows such as Vivian Westwood, Givenchy, Calvin Klein, and Alexander McQueen. From British, from British Mary Claire to American Vogue, and personal makeup artist to the Pussy and Cat Dolls. Gatha has become a well-known name within the world of fashion. Styling was matched by Tamer Wild. 
Tamer worked, Tamer's work has featured in Harper's Bazaar, Esquire, Love Magazine, ID Magazine, GQ Style, Wonderland Magazine, commercial work for Cutler and Gross, Swarovski, and developing the identity for Sony music artists. Taylor also styled Janet Jackson's last album cover. Shortly after the fashion show at City Hall, Miss Kimberly's life launched Allies Corner. Allies Corner is a panel with trans people and their allies. I wanted to give the public a chance to find out more about the trans community and ask important questions concerning trans-related issues. It's a time to make mistakes and learn without any backlash. Also on the night, we present trans-led films directed by trans directors. In February 2020, we moved to our new home, the Google offices in King's Cross. Yeah. <laughs> These panels will be every three months. Next month, Miss Kimberly's Life presents Cirque de Trans, a trans-led cabaret show with singers, magicians, contortionists, aerialists, etc., etc., etc. I'm from Michigan. You probably didn't notice my accent. <laughs> I grew up in Michigan and a very religious uh, background. My family, actually, my great grandmother, who I was actually quite close to, she was like my best friend, started our congregation. I had to go to church every Tuesday, Tuesday Bible class, Thursday prayer meeting, Saturday um, choir practice, Sunday morning Bible studies, and then. Uh, Evening, evening uh, service. So it's a lot of church. <laughs> but I'm very lucky to come from a family who let me be who I wanted to be. And I'm very lucky that I got the chance to discuss the Bible with my great-grandmother. And she would tell me her views, and I would tell her my views. And she would kind of think, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Unfortunately, my mother didn't really get on, so she kicked me out at a very early age. And I ended up in New York studying at the Academy of Theatrical Arts, which is a very, very small school. It sounds very impressive, but it's very small. I was due to go to the Academy of Dramatic Arts. That didn't work out, so I got pissed off and I came to England. And the rest is history. <laughs> and I'm here. I'm okay with time? One minute. Okay. I just want to leave you with this. Um, I've kind of, um, I haven't had a chance to tell you my whole story, but it's been one long journey. And I just want to say to everyone, never let anyone tell you you can't do anything. So many people have told me you will not be able to do this or you will not be able to do that. And let me tell you, I have done it. Just this year, I was actually given a 1 to 10 or the 20 up. God, I can't even think of the name of the board I got. <laughs> anyway, I received an award from the NAS project at the Lords, the House of Lords. A black trans woman come over to England, do her own show at the mayor's office, and then I'm at 
I receive the word at the Lord's. Never let anyone tell you you can't do it. Always put your mind. You know, what you said earlier was very important. Always go for it. And that didn't come out right either, but you know what I mean. <laughs> 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 So, uh, yeah, we're going to talk to you, we're just going to go over the internet and we'll see you for the next speaker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, um, we'll move this out of the way. Thank you so much. Uh, cool. So, next up, uh, we've got Monch Taylor, and he's also a Kian graduate. And um, he's an award-winning actor, speaker, comedian, and he went to Asana's school, apparently, um, which is so interesting. Um, and inspired her to do what she loves the most, which is working at Queen Mary University of London. Um, and also uh, scuba diver, I don't know why you that, but it's interesting. Um, and also runs Comedy Club for Kids, which I always thought was a pretty amazing project. So if you've got any little brothers and sisters who um, have got like an evil sign to your comedy, send them along to talk about it much. But uh, yeah, if we can um, welcome, uh, we'll all have applause, and uh, please welcome Marsh Taylor. It's been amazing so far. Uh, this thing called imposter syndrome, you probably feel it a lot. <laughs> I wanted to go first, so I got it done. Um, I knew Ellie, apparently we, we were chatting before, we went to Queen Mary around the same time, but I was trying to think, why didn't we know each other? But when you said we played rugby, because I played rugby, I think we were drunk the whole time. So basically that's why we didn't know each other, um, but university is a lot more than just drinking, because my friend didn't drink. But um, I feel like I'm in a giant hoover. It feels like a filter. My Dyson filter looks exactly like this. Maybe it's a metaphor for the arts, austerity, it's all getting sucked away, who knows. I keep hearing a train rumble as well below us. Is that just in my head or is that the train? It's not just my belly. It's probably the devil now coming to get me from what I've just said. He's definitely judging me, this guy. Um, so, yeah, my name is uh, Marjorie. It's not actually my name. My, and I'll tell you the reason why I kept it. Um, first, it's stage names. Uh, but my real name is Peter, which is weird. Because I always get that thing which is, I know, it's not connected at all. It's like that thing where, you know, if you're an ethnic minority, you get that thing where people ask you twice, where are you from? You, where are you from? You go, Manchester. They go, where are you from? <laughs> you know, it suddenly turns into an FBI kind of interrogation. And you go, I just keep playing. I go, well, I'm from Manchester. And they go, but where, where are you from? It's that kind of British politeness. Um, but it wasn't a cultural thing. People assume it's just my name because my mum's from Hong Kong. My dad's from South Africa originally. I was born in Kettering and I live, uh, I grew up in, in around Cheshire in Manchester. And um, it's not anything, it's actually because I was really shy. My friends called me Mojo because I had none, because I was awful at talking to women. I was terrible. Case in point, there was a girl called Alice Mollison in the canteen. I'm going to talk to her for ages. I went over, when I get nervous, I eat. So I, had a, I, I was nibbling a chocolate muffin, coughed chocolate muffin, a chip of chocolate chip into Alice Mollison's eye. She had to go home. It was awful. So then, you know when you want to be, you can't ever choose your nickname. You can't come in and say, you know, to all your mates. They always call you the thing you don't want to be called. That's the thing that sticks. They go, no, we choose your nickname, right? My, I couldn't come in and be like, guys, can everyone call me Thunder? 
from today. Everyone's going to call me Thunder. They go, no, no, no. Oh, all right, no, no, we're going to call you Mojo. Which got shortened to Moj, and my drama teacher said, actually, Moj Taylor, actually, it's quite good. It's better than Peter Taylor, because I think there was an England manager called Peter Taylor. I don't look like a Peter Taylor. So my drama teacher encouraged me to go to, um, not to drama school. She said, actually, a degree. So I went to Queen Mary when I was uh, 18 years old. I just kind of steamrolled into university. Because most students, when you actually think of it, do you get a choice? My mum wasn't the type of person to say, um, uh, what do you want to do at 18? If you're from certain cultures, you get, what university do you want to go to when you're 18? That's a choice within a choice. And that's what my mum was like. Let me describe my parents as well. So my mum's about that big, she's tiny. For the podcast, it's really small. So my mum's about that big, she's shrinking every year, we keep her out of the sun. She looks like a raisin with feet, all right? That's the best way to do Not racist, you're allowed to laugh at that. I cleared that joke with her, all right? Well, while she was going, mm, I just left the room. So, she looks like a raisin with feet. She's always saying to me, what are you going to do at 18? What are you going to do? You're going to go to university? You're going to go, Russell Group, Russell Group, Russell Group. And I said, oh my God. My dad's the opposite. Um, neither of my family had been to university. I was actually, because I think there's many types of intelligence. I hate it when people just go exams equal intelligence. I got straight... A's and A stars for my GCSEs. I got straight A's for my A levels. I don't consider myself clever. It's the imposter syndrome. I just managed to system, and for me, I calmed down when I work out a system. I went right, because exams are like Pavlovian conditioning. It's like Pavlov's day. You do something, you answer a certain question, you look at past papers, you get the mark. I'm not saying people who don't get first are not clever, but I'm saying there are other types of emotional intelligence, things like emotional intelligence, other types of intelligence. And my dad was very emotionally intelligent. Problem was, my dad's a carpenter. He started a business when he was 18. So that made me want to go down a freelance route. And the problem I got from my dad was, he loved what I got from him, the kind of up and go, I'm going to do what the hell I want with my life. I kind of did, he was a kind of used kind of academics and things. He didn't actually pass uh, his college course because my mum went into labor with me on his final exam day of college. So he never actually got, I know, yeah, yeah. Way to kick someone when they're down. He always says, oh, honestly, you don't want to know what, what I said when I found out But about you. But um, the problem was I got from him the values. And you're going to get a lot of values from people. Why? When you're at university, for me, it wasn't the course. I would have rather left with a 2-2, which is quite a good mark still, a 2-2, and uh, more emotional intelligence, more idea about who I was as a person, what I stood for in the world, social capital, cultural capital, the different types of people and genders and religions I was going to meet, screwing up a bit, a lot of failure, because you learn through failure, going out of your comfort zone. I would have rather left with a tutu and all that than a first and not being able to talk to people and basically been a robot. Because a robot will take your job one day, if that's what you are. You'll get employed on your human qualities. And the reason I kept the name Moj was because it always reminds me of being shy. And actually, I'm so glad my mum actually, she forced me to do drama. She forced me to do a part-time weekend thing called Stagecoach, where you do an hour of singing, an hour of dance, an hour of drama. And I used to do that on a Saturday. And I didn't want to go up first. I was shaking like this. And I still get nervous now, but my drama teacher always said to me, the day you stop getting nervous about something is the day you stop caring about something. It's what we were saying about feeling alive. You know, you felt alive when you were here. It tapped into your soul, your humanity. So for me, the best thing I got from Queen Mary, I mean, I don't even know what my certificate was. We were talking about this, weren't we, before? I mean, I know I'm butting in. Can you please just say what happened? Come on. 
He told me this just now when we were talking. I was like, why did you not mention that? Comedy gold. When I left Queen Mary's, I had library fees, so I hadn't paid. And <laughs> they get you. They always get you. <laughs> 20 years later, following me down the street, like that, with holes um, in the newspaper. So, so when I, for seven years, I graduated in 2007. And so for seven years, I didn't actually know what my university grade was. I told people I graduated from university. And... Um, yeah, I'm not sure that they knew that. I was pretty sure I got a good mark because I worked, I worked hard. But um, I couldn't tell people exactly what it was until I was asked exactly what mark did you get? I said, okay, cool, I'll find out. I went back to Queen Mary's and um, paid my library funds. I love you that much. Yeah, yeah, 35 pounds. Yeah, That's what I'm going to work that out there, bro. It was seven years. I paid that, they gave me my grades, and I carry on. Give him a round of applause. Right. I've done a show within a show here. Sorry, that was a show and tell within a show and tell. Do I know that? Yeah, it's called artistic licensing. I stole that. Okay. Uh, so, uh, that's what comedians do. But, um, yeah, so my mum and dad. Um, I have a weird kind of thing. You know, my mum had never been to uni, my dad hadn't, but they really wanted me to. My dad didn't want me to go, but my mum really wanted me to go. And it was a real pressure point in my life. I think it bubbled over. I had some mental health problems when I was at university. I'm really glad I came here because my Spanish teacher, I did Spanish and drama. I don't think I would have passed my degree if I hadn't had a year abroad, out way out of my comfort zone, getting homesick. I started smoking, I started drinking too much, all this. Then I came back and I pretty much crumbled in the final year when I knew it was getting down to it. And I always remember my teacher, she was incredible. So she was like, I'm way more, and I always remember this, said, I'm way more than lecturer. And when come and talk to me as a human, and this is thing about your soul. When you leave university, I think it's about being a rounded person. And my mum and dad couldn't get that. They just couldn't understand it. My dad didn't want me to go because he thought, dare posh people go to university, that's it. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not, really. And my mum my, my was kind of like, you, 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 need to, you need to go. You need to go to the family, to your great grandma in Hong Kong, who looks like a turtle that's been pulled out of its shell and slapped in a North Face jacket. Not racist again, I'll show you a picture. But she's, and she's there judging me, this little turtle in a North Face jacket. And it was terrifying. And it, it reached the boiling point where and it boiled over at university. I realized now I was in the kind of eruption stage where you were starting to get tremors before I went to university because my dad ended up, he threw a jacket potato at my face during dinner. Because I didn't, I didn't tell him I'd sent it off my UCAS form. I just sent it off, just sent it off. I didn't tell him. And then he got a call from my drama teacher going, he's got an offer from this place in London. I'm from Manchester. I was like, where's Queen Mary? I don't know. But I got an offer from London. And then my dad answered the phone, landline days. You know, I came home and I was like, all right. And he was cooking. Say cooking. He put it in the oven. The only thing he could cook was a jacket potato. It doesn't count. And he had a spatula under it. And he didn't, you know, people get like that. Like at the football and things. And he didn't realise he had the spatula under the oven tray with a potato on. I just went, no, like that. Hit me in the face. That's why I'm so thin. I'm terrified of potatoes. I've avoided crisps. I've avoided jacket potatoes. My whole life, I see all of them. But what I want to come to is this, is this thing about, I was on the way here and I was, I was told kind of to think about the reasons you went to university. Um, and I saw a thing on the brief actually, and it said, uh, well, it, it said, yes, I want to do this. Maybe theme it around, yes, why do you want to do what you do? I actually did drama because I tried other things to do. I tried to think of a secure job. I got hypnotized by my parents. And you've got to break that. And some people end up breaking the hypnotism when they're about 40 years old and going, what the hell am I doing in this job? I hate it. 
I can't remember my degree. There was no feeling in the degree. It was just lectures. There was no screwing up, failing, arguing with people, debating with people, protesting, all these things. And uh, for me, it was about feeling alive. It was about the thing about feeling alive. And I, it wasn't that I wanted to do drama. I wanted to, I thought about joining the Royal Navy because I teach scuba diving. I love being underwater. I've always loved being in the sea. Royal Navy, I thought, Royal Navy, secure, be a diver. And then my dad, I was like, join my dad's business, financial character. I was like, join my dad's business. That's fine. And he kept saying, just, just join the business, just join the business. I'll start you on 20,000 pounds. And he was furious. This is after the potato. He still said, oh, I'm sorry about that. But just join the business at 18. You'll be fine. You'll take it over one day. It's not enough to have a wage. You've got to care on a deeply human level. So my mission to you guys is really think about not the name of the degree. You're not going to look back at that certificate. I don't even know where mine is. You're going to look at the qualities you took. Seriously. And you only found yours recently. Uh, you're not going to look at the degree. You're going to look at the qualities. And someone in, a someone in an interview doesn't get you in and say, let's discuss your degree. No, no, they don't talk about it. They say, tell me, tell me about yourself. Tell me some experiences you've had. Tell me about how much, how did you build resilience? Well, my dad threw a jacket potato at me. Things like that, you know, just, you know. But it's really important. I'm going to finish on this. I had a friend at university. He's no longer with us because he passed away. Um, he was an amazing guy. Um, he was the reason I got through fourth year and my teacher. That mental side of it, and you are paying with your tuition fees. I hate the term because it's a misnomer. It's not, it should be called a university experience fee. It goes on supporting mental health. It goes on all these services that these wonderful people provide. And I know I've kind of gone slightly over, but um, it's about you becoming a rounded person. And that's what I took. And it took my dad six months to start talking to me again. Um, before, this is when I was in sixth form, before, six months after he got the call and I said I was going to go anyway. And he came to my graduation, he didn't visit me once at university, he didn't visit me once in Spain. But he came to my graduation and I've been lucky enough to do a lot of things with my degree, um, which some of them we've mentioned, so I'm not going to talk about it. But try and think about that, the human qualities you're going to take. And any experience you take is going to build resilience. And you need to fail a bit. You want to be creative, you're going to have to go out of your comfort zone. It's a long way of saying, that's why I keep the name Moj, because I'm still terrified, I'm still shy, but um, I didn't do anything I wanted to do, um, apart from about my friend. Just remember, he had 240,000 hours. If you ever need to motivate yourself in life, make sure if you feel that burning thing to do a creative subject, remember, he had 240,000 hours. If you live to about 84, work out on a calculator, it's terrifying. You have less than three quarters of a million hours alive, and you are asleep for a third do what you need to do. However, you can try and make money out of your passions. And I've gone way over my lent you two minutes. Thank you very much. Cheers. So, yeah, if I can reconstruct this, and we're going to go over to our last speaker who is uh, Nafisa Bakar, who, if you've ever heard of um, some pretty amazing websites, and Neil, look, amazing tech support here. Collaboration. Yeah, thanks for that. This should be a piece. Um, so, yeah, I think we're nearly ready to go. Um, but yeah, so there's two amazing websites, uh, one called Halal Gems, and one called Amalia. If you don't know much about um, the Muslim community, or um, if you need to kind of get into that kind of lifestyle and understand that Muslims care about 
the same things we do. And, and it definitely opened up my idea, ideas around um, Islam and trying to understand something that I really didn't know anything about before I started reading publications like Amalia. So I'm really excited to have her. We really wanted her to come today. And um, yeah, our son has been really fundamental in getting out here. So we're really happy um, to welcome Ibiza Bakar. So my name is Nafisa Bakar, I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Amalia and I wanted to tell you a bit about my story of entering university and coming out of the other end and basically starting a business. So I, at A-levels, didn't know what I wanted to do. I came from a family where the option was engineer or doctor, um, my dad being an engineer. and. At my A-levels, I did uh, biology, chemistry, maths, and PE. And when it came to choosing a degree, it was, okay, do I do just chemistry, or do I do just biology, or do I do, you know, these single subjects? And I very quickly realized, actually, I had no clue. So I ended up finding a course at UCL, which was called Natural Sciences. And it kind of works like the American system, where you have a major and a minor. So you do a bit of everything your first year and they've got a newer course out I'm not trying to plug UCL here <laughs> which is a mix of arts and sciences um, because I really believe that at 18 not many people do know what they want to go on to do and a lot of people don't follow the degree that they um, end up graduating with so I did natural sciences um, at UCL and I loved what you said about a university experience because I remember early on in one of my first lectures, someone said, you're paying, at that time it's £3,000, um, you're paying £3,000 to be here, sit at the front. And what my lecturer was basically saying, get, get value for your money. And similar to what you were saying, there was so much that happens at university and so much that I benefited from personally that I do feel like I've sort of made my money back. Um, so whether it's societies, whether it's courses, there is so much stuff that happens at university that once you leave, with or without your certificate, um, you get charged for, you get charged to even come to things like this, um, you have to pay a ticket price at the door. So one thing I would say is there is so much available and Primary sounds amazing. Um, so I'm sure there's loads of stuff available. Um, so when I started university, uh, or when I applied at least, my plan was, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was going to work very hard and then I was going to come out the other end, become an investment banker, make loads of money, and then somewhere in the future figure out what it was I wanted to do now that I had loads of money and could do anything in the world. And long story short, I ended up doing a gap year because um, I missed one of my grades by one mark and a slight tangent here. Um, my, the person that interviewed me at UCL reached out and said, hey, I saw you missed it by one mark. Do you want to take a gap year? No retakes and come back the year later. So I was literally presented with a gap year on my year off. Um, and I ended up working at an engineering consultancy. And I was doing really stimulating work. I was doing what I thought I wanted to do in terms of it was in science, it was intellectually stimulating, it paid really well. Um, and I realized actually all these boxes are ticked, but I, I'm just not feeling it. And so I guess I went into universities trying to figure out, okay, if that's not what I want to do, what, what's my story going to be? And I started searching at UCL, like I would dip in and out of societies, try and see what was working. And then I found an artist. And I think Primaris has an artist. If not, um, there's many around London. And an artist is basically a society where you get involved to do social projects and you work on real life challenges um, 
and basically come up with a business or a social enterprise. And it was sort of my first um, real life experience of actually your efforts can create change, even if that's on your doorstep in your society or in the wide world. And in Access, if you look it up, is a, a huge thing all around the world, and they have like this national competition and international competition. I think Egypt won it this year, um, where you submit your project and you talk about your project and you talk about the impact you've created. Um, so I did that, but it was one of those things where I saw it as a side, as a side thing of my degree. Um, in my family, you had to be academic and, you, and at UCL, you had to be joining either the EYs, the PWCs and all of those sorts of things. Um, and there's huge pressure to do that. So I ended my, I was coming to the end of my third year. And did anyone here study economics? Good. <laughs> so I was hanging around with a lot of students um, that study economics because the nature of the courses you meet a few people from all courses. They were all applying. If you have met an economics student, you will know that they have like a five-year plan. They know what spring weeks to do. They know what internships to do. They're just just really on it in a way that I wasn't. And I remember feeling terrified of like, oh my God, all these people know what they're going to be doing after university. And I pulled one of my friends aside, and I, my, my smartest friend, and I said, um, what, what should I do? Where are you going to apply? Give me, give me a list of names. And she gave me a list of companies. And I started doing applications. And then something in me talking about what's, what's true to you just was like, I, I don't even know what these jobs are. I just know that they're a big name. And I just know that they spend lots of money trying to attract talent from universities like ours. And I took all the cover letters, all the applications, put them in a folder somewhere deep like away in my laptop. Um, and I was like, actually, I at least know this isn't what I want to do. And I think there's a lot of pressure on what, what you want to be and who do you want to be what you want to do for the rest of your life and I guess at that moment looking back it was less about you know what I wanted to do and more about you knowing what I didn't want to do um, and it can be really hard when everyone around you knows what they want to do everyone around you is following a certain path to say actually I'm not going to do that okay so what are you going to do don't know um, and so I kind of think I was in a bit of denial because I didn't have a backup plan but I had this idea of Mali in my head and Amalia, in its current form today, uh, we're a media company that aims to amplify the voices of Muslim women. And we do that through podcasts, videos, articles, events. We work with other organisations like Waterstone, Lush, Pinterest to create ultimately meaningful moments through, throughout podcasts and events to help Muslim audiences feel seen. And it's developed a lot since we started back then, and I'll talk a bit about that later. But I had a sense of who am I to start a company? Who am I to take my natural sciences degree and do something so very different? And what ended up happening is I ended up working at UCL in the entrepreneurship center because of the stuff that I did with Anactus, um, it kind of fitted in with me of like helping other students start on an idea. And while on paper, it will say Amalia's entering its fifth year in reality it was like a six year process because for so long i was like who am i to sort of think i can even start anything and i guess my third year of university and my year at ucl was me trying to fill those gaps and me trying to think okay i don't have the network i don't have the capital i don't have the skills i don't have the domain experience which lots of investors and accelerators look for um, and the longer I sat on my idea, the more I lost confidence as well, because you get to this place, if anyone's had an idea and not done anything about it, 
um, we just think, am I just going to be all talk for the rest of my life? And so I, so I started thinking, okay, what is it that makes me not feel confident and how do I feel that? So the first thing I did is I, I went on to Founders and Coders and Founders and Coders is an incredible coding bootcamp. Their whole ethos is that it shouldn't cost you £50,000 to become a junior developer and they offer 16-week free coding programs which turn you into a junior developer. And so I did that. And that was about me trying to fill this skills gap. So I was like, right, I want to be able to build this thing that I had in my head. Um, how do I do that? And then after that, um, I was like, okay, but I don't have any network. I don't actually understand how to build a business. I don't know what I'm doing. And so then I joined Ignite. Um, and I'm saying, and then I joined making it all sound really easy, but obviously 10 minutes. Um, and Ignite, for anyone who doesn't know what an accelerator is, it's a business accelerator and what it does is it takes founders and there's lots of accelerators out there ignites a really good job um and it takes a found founders um businesses and basically says can we help you move forward in the next few months and the great thing about it is like the reverse of uni where they give you money um, rather than you giving university money so they give you amount of money and the idea is that you're able to concentrate for about three to six months without thinking about income, without thinking about job, um, and work on this idea. Um, and for my co-founders, my sister, we joined the Accelerator in January 2016. Uh, she was seven months pregnant at the time. Um, and we were just very unlikely candidates um, who would join an Accelerator at the time. But to what you said is, if you really pour your soul into it, something, I really do believe it happens. And I also believe other people see that. And so while we were turning up and, you know, my sister's there with her bump, like about to give birth any minute, I think it, people underestimate how long, how far just trying goes. And I actually think where we are today, a lot of it is just people saying, you know what, you're not amazing, but you're trying. And I'm going to help you because you're trying. Um, and that help has looked like getting desk space, getting a free laptop for my ex-boss at UCL. Oh, he doesn't listen to this and I'll it back. You know, even getting into, um, getting into events that normally cost like £300 for a ticket and just saying, Do you know what, we don't have £300 to pay, but we'd love to be at this thing. Like all those sorts of things are a way of, someone else giving you goodwill just because they believe that what you are trying to do should exist. Um, so I'm going to go on to why we do what we do in a bit more about the context in which our work exists. So these are some snapshots from a report uh, released by the Muslim Council of Britain and it's about the state of media reporting on Islam and Muslims. Um, and for the purpose of the podcast, I'll read some of them out. Um, so terrorism is the most recurring theme in the media relating to Muslims in Islam. 59% of all articles analysed, um, and I think there's analysed about a thousand or over a thousand articles, of all articles analysed associated with associated Muslims with negative behaviours. And then when it comes to TV, drama, films, um, be that Netflix, be that BBC, uh, drama uh, proportionately misrepresented Muslims at this number most, think, uh, shows like The Bodyguard. And ultimately, um, when Muslim women are often passed the night in mainstream media, we are asked to speak about terrorism, or we are asked to speak about hijab, or we are asked to speak about very political issues. 
And I'm sure it's no secret that the media is not a big fan of Muslims. You've probably seen all the headlines for yourselves. And I guess for us, it was actually, how do we become a part of that change? How do we create something that exists on our own terms and doesn't exist in the lens of mainstream media? So for us, and there's a media platform called Black Ballad, and Toby four years ago said, white mainstream media cares more about avocados than it does black women. And I feel like that goes for a lot of minorities in, and it's that a piece about avocados is more likely to get commissioned than a piece by black women writing about avocados, right? Even for black women, they need to write about um, their experience of being a black woman. It can't be that they want to write about art therapy or something random like that. And so us, it's very much creating a space where Muslim women can exist on their own terms. If you want to write about recipes, dating, relationships, politics, the whole sort of bag of things are open. Um, so this is some of our, just some of our editorial. Um, I hope everyone's registered to vote. That's my plug for the day. Um, you're lucky this wasn't yesterday. Um, and so our content covers um, a bit of everything from celebrating initiatives like the All Muslim Women's One Club, um, travel guides, things to eat, what to do on a Friday night, um, ex just documenting lived experiences of Muslim women. So we've had Muslim women talking about what's it like to be a Muslim woman in places like Oxford and Cambridge at university where it's very whitewashed. Um, and the idea is that actually we're creating a space to be able to not only validate lived experiences of Muslim women, but also elevate. And part of it is actually you can do whatever you want. And for us, it's creating the next generators generators, the next generation of writers, of thinkers, of critics, even if you think about film, um, who gets to be a film critic and who gets to see themselves as a film critic. You don't really see Muslim women as a film critic, or at least they're not seen as an esteemed film critic. So for us, it's about passing the mic on the terms of that person. Another thing we do is podcasts. Um, so this is how Asala um, sort of came across us, the Malia podcast. And again, it's about creating a new space for Muslim women to speak on their own terms in a different medium. Um, one of the ones that we do is called Small Talk. And Small Talk is essentially, again, if you look at mainstream media, it's very rare to see a Muslim woman who is an expert, um, and it's not in relation to her identity as a Muslim woman. And so Small Talk was about us passing the mic to a Muslim woman who's an expert in her field. Um, so our recent one was about climate change and it was in the week of Extinction Rebellion. And we spoke about what's um, race, religion and class got to do with climate change activism. And we spoke to climate change, two climate change activi activists. And it was about breaking down a topic, um, making it accessible and making it relevant. Because I believe that if our media is not accessible and not relevant, that leads to communities being disempowered. And we're seeing that during things like the general election, where people are saying, my vote doesn't matter, because the media has vilified so many communities to think that actually there is an us in them, and we don't matter in this whole sort of system. Um, we also do events, and again, this is about creating spaces. Um, so our event this month was with Waterstones, and that was all about how to get published. Um, so we took an industry which typically is not very diverse, um, and we wanted to demystify it. We wanted to make it more accessible to Muslim women, and it was open for everyone. Um, and it was a panel, of, and you can hear some of the snippets on our podcast as well, 
to really help get more uh, voices into publishing. Another one was working with Lush. They have a film festival. People are always shocked because they're like, Bath Bomb Lush? Yes, Bath Bomb Lush. Um, they have a film festival and um, typically organisations come to us and say, we don't see your audience at what we do. And that might be online, that might be offline. Um, so Lush Films Festival, we programmed um, one of the evenings where we premiered a film called The Judge. And it was this about this Muslim woman who's a judge in divorce um, courts and it kind of followed her story and her trials and tribulations and we also did a panel talk and for us we often are spoken about as hard to reach audiences um, when really the reality is that no one is trying to really reach those audiences um, so we try and flip that on, that head, on its head and really question why, why do you see us as hard to reach um, these are some of the organisations we've worked with um, and I guess one of the things I just really want to drive home is I never ever thought that this would be my day job and my job, 24-hour job. Um, but I just, I, I think, and I, I wouldn't say that I was ever exceptional in what I did or what I thought or what I thought I could create. Um, but again, it's just people giving us goodwill and you just really being passionate about what you do. You really have to care if you want to see it through. I'd also say if you are, you have got an idea and you are thinking of a business, everything takes 10 times longer than you think it will. Um, we've been around for five years now and now we are starting to see people approach us that it just would have been too early in year one. We didn't really have anything to show. Um, and sometimes people might take that as, you know, no one supported us when we started out, but you've also got proof yourself. Um, so in terms of what we do, uh, we have an agency where we work with brands and we normally get a brief where they say, look, how do you talk to your audience? Um, our most recent project has been working with Universal on the James Bond franchise. Um, and yeah, so people are like, does James Bond have a Muslim character? And I'm like, no, there's not. Um, but if you think about James Bond and what James Bond represents, Actually, James Bond's franchise isn't relevant to most audiences, especially in London, right? Especially sitting here, how many of you feel like James Bond is relevant to you, right? Um, and ultimately, we work with forward-thinking companies who understand that the future of their relevancy and the future of purpose and impact is by talking to audiences that are from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, so there we've been, we did some interesting work about how do you talk to different audiences um, because again if you think about hard to reach um, if you look at movies like Black Panther and then if you look at movies like uh, James Bond and if you t look at the difference between who over indexes at Black Panther and who under indexes at um, James Bond there's a significant difference which is to the tune of like 50 million and ultimately if we keep talking to default audiences as companies as systems you're ultimately going to start talking to no one um, so part of our work is how do we create really deep meaningful moments with all these different audiences I've been given the one minute so I'm just going to go um, this is some of our lovely PR um, and again, I don't think the story of Romali is exceptional, but I think people just have seen it and been like, you know what, you're trying and you've been trying for a few years now, so let's talk about it. Um, the last thing I will tell you about is Street Eats Halal Gems. So we acquired Halal Gems, which is a halal food discovery platform and also food festival um, earlier this year in February. That is our food festival that we do in its third year. Uh, we take over Hospitals Market, if anyone knows it, near Liverpool Street, fill it with halal food vendors and poetry and storytelling and drumming. 
Um, and the idea is that we create an experience that is inclusive of Muslims, but open to everyone. Um, and I think this is the thing, like a lot of people think inclusion means exclusion of lots of different audiences. Um, and for us, Street Eats was about creating a space where Muslims can just walk in and let the guard literally down. Um, and at the core of what we do is just making meaningful experiences online and offline. The last thing is it's not about Burka, I wrote in it this year, it's an anthology of 17 women. Oh, really? Oh, yes, yes, she actually was in her entire listening to the podcast. Um, so, yeah, it's not about the Burka, it's an anthology by 17 Muslim women. I wrote my essay is called The Representation of Muslims, Terms and Conditions Apply. And it was again about the representation of Muslims in media and advertising and some of the work that we do. Um, so yeah, do grab a copy. It is fantastic, if I say so myself. <laughs> Thank you. So we overran a little bit. We've got about uh, 25, 25 minutes maybe for um, some questions till eight o'clock. But I just want to do a quick vote, see how everyone's feeling um, in terms of um, do people want to speak directly to the, to the panel or stay in here and we'll do some more traditional Q&A. So if you want to do the one where we will go and have a drink and talk, talk individually, uh, let me know. Uh, so put your hands up now. Have a little break, or if we just continue just for a little bit longer, you can still go out, get drinks, come back in. Um, cool. Uh, so, hands up the second one. Uh, so, bit of okay, so we're going to have three amazing questions. I hope these guys, I mean, I found it really inspiring. Thank you so much for your presentations, all really different, all really exciting, and show and tell. It's quite a scary thing for speakers, like because we don't really tell them very much, um, which is a bit evil. But we want them to to say what they want to say, and that's really important to us. So, do we have any questions for audience for any of our panelists? And we quite like quite general questions, so other people across the panel can talk, not just what one person. If you like, if you want to talk to one person, talk to them. If you can afterwards, anyone got questions? I'm just feeling that you all want to say. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna start then and just um, if I, and just say um, so what's been your biggest failure and so this is a really hard one because people love talking about the rewards and their exciting things that happen and we've always striven at Chantel to talk about challenges to talk about things that are not easy things that are difficult. Because I think you always get that in biographies of people, famous people that one of the most popular sort of Christmas books. You know, look at what I've done. You know, I've been amazing. And this is all my celebrity friends. Read out St. John's book, um, if you want that kind of shenanigans. Um, but, yeah, so the first, the first question for me. Have a favor though, you want your questions. You don't want it to just be about us. Well. So, um, what's been your biggest failure and how did you overcome it? Or, or can you really over, overcome failure? Who wants to start? My biggest failure, um, I host music comedy nights around the world, and um, when I was starting out, I actually loved it, I still love it. There was a point in time at which I wanted to take myself to the next level and really jump into that world, um, and so I invested 
5,000 pounds in my first night, my first night. I've done things for MTV, Coca-Cola, with quite a few people at a really good level. Absolutely <coughs> love it. And I thought, okay, cool. I'm ready now to put myself out there, put my own money out there and really turn this into my business. And um, the deal was put some money down. And if you make a certain amount behind the bar, you get your money back. I'm like, great. I've got DJs in from Barcelona, like from London. I had um, amazing acts. I hosted it and loved every single second of it, but I didn't make the money I needed to. And so they took my 5,000 pounds and um, I really didn't have 5,000 pounds. I borrowed it from family, friends to try and put that together. So that was, that was terrible, but it also it empowered me because I knew where I went wrong. I hadn't marketed it enough. I hadn't done enough to make sure people knew about it. I'd made sure the night was going to be incredible, but I hadn't done enough to make sure people knew about this amazing night. And so um, I took that lesson to heart. And when it came to my book, I invested um, almost £20,000 in, yeah, in this book from flights to different parts of the world to talk and meet with different artists. It's a graphic novel, you saw some of the images, um, to paying for the amazing art that this incredible artist, Antonio Paide, did for me. And I thought to myself, okay, cool, I'm ready this time. I'm going to make sure I do everything I'm supposed to do to make this work now. Um, I invested that money, lost it, had a great time. I had a great time here too, but I'm not losing this. I know what I want from it. I want to take myself to the level where I'm a published author. I want to tell my story. And um, my story is about Christmas and assassination attempts on Santa every year. Well, every year people ask you, what did you get? And we know about Coke's influence in Santa being red. It's heavily capitalist. We've heard of Mrs. Claus. When's the last time we've seen her? It's sexist. Um, Santa um, was originally from Turkey and he's been changed to a European man. And he's supposed to give to children all over the world. There are many parts of the world that don't get to see Santa. If you don't have access to a mall and money to pay, you're not going to see Santa Claus. And I thought, what about those children? So, I, you know, put this story together. My humbug assassins are going into the Empire Noel to take out the Holy Father at Christmas. And now I've rectified and learned from that mistake. So, thank you. Um, I was going to say, because the classic thing if you do acting or comedy would be, oh, I had this really bad gig, which you do. You learn a lot from if you've had the startups and the gigs and you just go, oh my God, like comparing emceeing things. And you're say that or you know um i did a when i did an edinburgh show i had my second worst fit. i had an edinburgh show and my first night i had one audience member had an 85 seat venue and i had 24 nights to do after that for a full mm-hmm. edinburgh show run of my own of my first solo stand-up show one person i almost jumped off waverley bridge honestly that night. i was terrified i was like oh my god one person and i stopped the show because they put their hand up and they, I went, yeah, and they, they were kind of to the toilet. So I stopped the show and, and they had a poo. So it was a really long time, or a really long week, but honestly, that five minutes when I was in the room on my own with the stage, the spotlight on me like that, and it was, it's a thing where you go, I am gonna have to leave this room and I either jump off the bridge or I go and I have to, and I stayed up all night and I went, what is going wrong here? How, not, how do I need to change the marketing on this? 
how do I need to, I, I thought I haven't paid anyone to fly her, it's just me, I need to invest so I can make some money, I'm going to pay for two people to fly for me each day. Um, how I marketed the show, I changed the thing on the poster, so I paid for the poster, but it all worked out well. By the end of the last week, it was um, selling out, but it went from one person. And the other thing I'll quickly say, my biggest failure, um, getting into a relationship and everything affects your creativity. If you're, whoever you're with, if they fuel your creativity or they're like you're kind of turning down the gas cooker with it, okay? Every, you need to feel like the most comfortable version of you. And I was in a relationship with a girl and now I look back at you, it was quite emotionally abusive. I stopped acting, I quit for about a couple of years and you don't always realize when time goes, you go, it's been two years. And I'd just come off doing a, a show I'd won, we'd won a, I was part of an immersive piece that we'd won a Fringe First for in Edinburgh. And I was like, I was, you know, I was got some agent, bigger agents to come and see me. And it was that controlling thing. So always be aware of your community. Always make sure you're around people who, you don't go, ironically, I know we act, but you're not acting around them. You are you. And you feel like you can voice your opinions, even if you disagree with people. So... That to me was my biggest failure, and I really learned that put the, the brakes on my career for a couple of years until I got out of it. Um, I don't know if there's anyone else who's got a thing. My biggest failure, first of all, you know, earlier, I couldn't remember the name of the uh, award I won. It's called the 10 out of 10 award. Just wanted to put that out there. You know, sometimes I get so nervous when I'm talking. You never believe that because I'm on stage constantly. But when it's in settings like this, it's like it's, it gets me a little bit nervous anyway. Um, ugh, enough of that spill. Just let it go. It's okay. Um, I think um, my biggest failure um, was... Um, Okay. I uh, let me. Oh, okay. I suffer from dyslexia and ADHD, which is pretty. Uh, uh, it's a lot. And you're trans, and American, and black. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to be the face of a nightclub called Heaven Nightclub back in the nineties. I'm slightly older than um, a lot of you here. I'm going to be twenty five my next birthday. Take him out. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Not really. No. Anyway, um, because, uh, like I said earlier, never let anyone tell you you can't do anything. I, I um, you know, believe it in yourself. Um, I, I went through a time where I just um, let myself go and I ended up doing drugs and I became very much into drugs. Um, and um, I lost a lot of my life, so much of my life. And that is one of my biggest failures. But now I obviously, you know, I've come on the other side and um, I'm really um, thankful because a lot of people um, don't make it to the other side or they make it six feet under. So, but now I, you know, work with uh, young people and I try to stress to them that, you know, I don't want to sound like a grandmother, but um, drugs can destroy your life. And they destroyed mine for a while. So that's my biggest failure. Now beat that. Yeah, I can't, I can't really top that story. Failure is, I mean, I've done a lot, I spoke, you know, I spoke basically about how I did everything wrong. Um, 
you know, I yeah, I kind of I yeah, I went down the drugs path for a while as well. And again, what I've never I think my thing is that I don't term things in terms of failure. Um, people like it's somewhere else, but some people see a mouse trap and I see free cheese and a fucking challenge. <laughs> and I'll probably get it wrong, but I'll try. Um, and I have got a lot of things wrong. I don't know what my biggest failure is, but I know what my biggest regret is. My biggest regret is that I actually, because of my commitment to theatre and writing and performing and directing, I actually missed my own brother's wedding. Oh my god! Yeah! Uh, it happens, uh, and I had to apologize it, and uh, yeah, I missed my own brother's wedding. I was a groomsman as well, so it's not like I didn't have to, like, to do it. I had like, plenty of work to do on the day. Uh, but yeah, full on wasn't there. But, just so you know, every story does have a happy ending. I've got two brothers. Uh, my oldest brother, I missed his wedding. Uh, my other brother, who's the middle brother, I'm the youngest. My the middle, middle brother, he got married uh, four years ago. And my oldest brother didn't go to his wedding. Oh my God. Uh, only because he got, like, he nearly died the day before and got in a car crash. Uh, so, should I ever get married? <laughs> One of them is not coming to my wedding. <laughs> Just to balance the whole of the family dynamic out. And why we didn't speak to each other for about three years. Uh, so yeah, um, failure is a big thing, but you've got to own You've really got to own your failures. If I'm said earlier, like you learn through failure. I direct shows on a daily basis. It is the, it is the foundation of my business. And I literally stand in front of people at them on the first day of every rehearsal and I look them dead in the eye and I just go like this. You have three weeks to get this wrong. Get the entire thing wrong. Because as soon as you get it wrong, they'll go, all right, yeah, I'm going to do that again. Fine, and you'll carry on. And your life will be better. You will be stronger. You'll be more developed. Um, accept failure and celebrate failure. Um, it's actually the cornerstone of my audience interaction inside the crystal maze. I tell my maze masters who are guiding the teams of people through the maze, I'm like, get them to celebrate failure. Because people think they're really good at it, they're not. It's solving puzzles. It's, a, you know, it's sports for nerds. Um, they're solving puzzles, but they don't win. And they get, and they, because grown human beings, especially adults, are like, no, I'm a grown human being. I succeed at everything, I win. So no, you don't. Life's hard, life's shit. And now I'm gonna, you're not gonna solve this puzzle in three minutes. And you're gonna rock your brains about it for four years. And all you need to do is turn left and turn right instead of walking into a mirror wall. Um, celebrate failure, because it's way more fun. And it's Thank you so much. And thank you for being so honest. Um, it's refreshing. Um, really exciting to actually hear some stories like that. And yeah, maybe I should frame it a little bit in a horrible way. But I think um, the point for us is to talk about real life and talk about that, you know, there's a lot outside of this place. And we've heard lots of different stories from different people about, you know, how resilience and how to sort of make the most of what you've got and, and don't be afraid to that. I think that's what we're trying to do. Get across there. Um, is there anybody who asked questions? We're good. Yeah, no. Um, thank you. Um, my question is about sort of the practical um, challenges and issues you have in sort of pursuing what you want to do. You all talked a lot about you know doing something that connects with you, connects with your soul. But doing that doesn't get you the money. <laughs> also, it doesn't it doesn't sort of make your parents proud. 
Um, if you're the sole provider for your family, it doesn't provide for that. If you're only going to uni to provide for your family, doesn't provide for that. So how do you yeah, take that? Yeah, I'd love to jump in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. Thank you. The reason I really wanted to jump in on this one is because I'm the oldest sibling of five and my mum was a single parent. I'm a single parent, yeah. My dad's always been in my life, but um, we had a great father, but we had difficulties, yeah? And um, financially is what I mean. And so I have framed my life and my work through my responsibilities, yes, I do what I want to do. Yes, I'm passionate and give my soul to everything I'm doing. However, um, I definitely make sure I'm able to provide for my family. Like I said at the moment, how do you work there and how do you make sure it happens? I mean, give your soul to it. But what I mean by that is practice. Dedicate yourself to your craft. Like, um, there was a time um, when people were coming up with alphabet poems, you know, every single letter, you come with a word, I thought, okay, cool, people are doing that, time for something new. And I saw an advert for bird's eye sausages. And, and I saw, instead of bird's eye sausage, I saw birds, I saw sage. And then, and then I ended up creating a poem to test my skills and practice. Every single word was food, drink, or a food and drink brand. It was um, Barbara, Rosemary, honey, come on. So that Barbara is a cocktail, Rosemary is a herb, um, honey, obviously the honey is, and then gammon, you know, gammon steak. Come on, ear hellman's been through. Some people eat pig's ears. Hellman's, you know what I mean? Beans and fruit. Every single word was, was designed, was food, drink, or a brand so that I could test my skills and see what I could say I saw Sage doing, you know, and I ended up creating an incredible and great story. But um, I, I work now with the VNA, I, I work with Netflix, with uh, like working with lots of really cool people because I put my passion into it. If I had done, if I personally had done something else, I worked in telesales for a while and we had a five minute, three minute, no, 11 minute break. And I remember I would, there were no windows upstairs in the office. So I would come downstairs and I would sit opposite a glass door so that I could see people that were free outside. And I thought to myself, wow, this is not school. They cannot keep me here. I'm leaving. Yeah, I left, like I said, other things happened and, and I was, at some point thrust into doing what I wanted, but I tried other things and I never would have been able to provide for my family in the same way, doing something I didn't want to do and I am giving everything to mm -hmm. what I love. Yeah. 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 yeah, so what's your name? Mahima. Mahima. Nice to meet you. Um, very good on the practicalities of it. Uh, I'll just be really, really quick. Uh, I promise, I really do. Uh, look, I, like, we all do lovely, lovely things. Uh, and I think we're all a bit longer in the tooth. Me personally, I'm in the mid thirties. Uh, I never reveal my age uh, because then maybe people make preconceptions. Um, also, I look naturally suspicious. Uh, I only started making full-time wage. Uh, I, I got freelance, but I technically I'm not freelance anymore because of the business. Um, I don't own the business, I just work for the business. Um, but I, like, now I have a full-time job. That's really cool. On the side, I still have loads of freelance. I only really had a full-time job for about a year. Um, before that, I was doing my entire life freelance. My entire, being freelance is great. But it's also great. It's like, because you make your own hours and you just have to push and work and work and work. On the practicalities of, I swear to God, until about five years ago, I was doing everything on the side. Uh, I worked in bars 
Um, I worked at a call center. Uh, I actually got fired from the same call center four times. <laughs> but they kept hiring me back. <laughs> um, I was a concierge. I actually, um, I, what else did I do? I was a concierge for an estate agent, hence the whole business. So getting bills and stuff, I was tapping them up. Uh, but my job was to just open and close the door uh, and smile and nod at people and bring them tea when they were having meetings. Um, I did dog shit work um, because I paid money. And when I wasn't there doing an eight hour shift, a 10 hour shift, I was. Um, I was networking, I was with my friends, I was at parties, doing all the same things, networking, creating work, creating out, and just constantly pushing. I didn't sleep. I still survive under five hours sleep at night, but that's only because I'm completely insane. Um, my girlfriend hates me, she hates me so much. Um, but like, I genuinely, I don't really sleep a lot, and I just work, bang, bang, bang. Now, I'm lucky enough that for the last five years, it's been full time. All I get to, I'm privileged, I'm humbled to be able to have known I spent 10 years working shit jobs for a minimum wage, best part, maybe I was lucky if I was getting £10 an hour, uh, which is great. Like London was really, really smashing London living wage, which is like 11 45 now, which is really, really sick. Like, I spent years doing those shit jobs, uh, but when I wasn't doing them, all of my energy and all of my time was making my own hands, and then it paid off. It paid dividends when I got to about, yeah, my late 20s. Because then suddenly everyone went, oh, you've been kicking around for a while, doing your thing. I don't talk to them about like, shit, calls them a job or anything else that I do. Busy making work, busy making art, busy getting out there. You do have to go through it, I swear you do, because no one's going to hand you anything. You have to go and you have to take it for yourself. You absolutely have to do all the shit that comes with it as well. And know when you're in those jobs, it's the soft skills. If I've done some really crap jobs as well, you just, um, I'll be really quick as well. Yeah, that's okay. um, when you're doing those jobs, you do have those moments you go, What am I doing? I did one called a media monitor. I had to sit eight hours of listening to radio or TV, not channel hopping. They'd chosen these chunks of regional radio because companies pay, like Tesco paid to know how much people on call in shows are mentioning Tesco and how much, what they're saying about, and they're annoyed about cheese and pasty or something. It was horrible. But what I always knew was, and I always knew this uses to get through school, you know, you don't get those 750,000 hours back. So, and you're asleep for a third. So when you're, when you're awake, you can find this odd type of ironic joy and just laugh sometimes. I use a crap job, I'd use it to people watch for characters. I'd use it to write little bits of stuff, or oh, some stand-up you can write. But I'd also think it was the soft skills. It was resilience. It was teaching me how to deal in a situation under pressure that I don't want to be in, which is always useful. And you feed that into when you're finally doing the thing you do want to do. So they do, it sounds cheesy, but it will make you stronger. And just this final analogy, I mean, why is a baby so funny? Baby's so funny, you watch them because they're constantly failing. They're constantly failing. They're stumbling and like knocking, pooing themselves, banging into walls, trying to get a triangle into a square hole. And it's like, but then you see the development in them. And it's like, um, there was a, I wrote it down earlier, Alan Watts, who's a famous British philosopher. He said, everyone talks about life like a journey and that feeling, and it can give you that anxiety and that pressure. Of, I've got to be doing that for my family or that by the time I'm 30, 40, 50. Which drive you mad. And anxiety. Uh, and Alan Watts uh, really like a quote. He said, "Life is not really a journey; it's a dance." And think about a dance. If you're at a wedding, you're a bit drunk, or you're kind of learning the dance, and you kind of don't really know what anyone's doing until you start doing it. Even if you were a professional dancer, you fail a lot when you're doing the choreography, when you're doing the training. So that's the stage you're in. You just got to fail a bit. 
And you're gonna fail if you want to get to where you are. It's gonna be that you sometimes do. You're in that dance of life where it's about play, it's about enjoyment, and you can weirdly find a lot of weird enjoyment in things you don't like, or you you use it, don't you? In when things get tough in what you do do. Sorry, I don't know if any of that makes sense. Just to have an extra space to now, and we're actually lost. Um, but uh, this might actually be the last point. But we're going to continue the conversation outside um, in a bit more relaxed setting. Uh, if you guys can stick around, that'd be great. I'd like to um, just pass it to the piece of the first, last thing, I'll say a little bit, and then we'll relax on it. Um, I think a lot of the times we frame it as you're either doing something you love or you're doing something you hate. And I think actually, if you just start thinking, um, about is the next step I'm going to do bringing me a little is it bringing me closer or is it taking me further so for example at university one of the reasons I didn't go on to grad scheme because I thought actually it's not taking me closer to what I'm, I'm doing but actually I could still be on a salary and in a job and be, be closer to what I want to do which was working in an entrepreneurship centre where I got to build my network when I got to like be exposed to a whole new industry that I wanted to be in so I think sometimes it's it's less about what am I, how am I going to do what I love for the rest of my life, but how do I just at least move even one degree closer to it in the next year through my decisions. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. A couple of thank yous, um, and obviously thanks to our speakers who uh, we have, uh, we've had today. We've had five amazing speakers, and make sure if you've got friends or whatever, get them to listen to the podcast. Online, and I'd like to thank uh, Masuma, uh, Saula, Elliot, Aisha, all supposed to be here, but she's not here, so we're going to thank her very much. And our other students, you're also shooting our buses, and there's some other shooting our buses, and people who work with me knowing the audience, so thank you for your support. Uh, I'd like to thank Saula for her support in creating the event and making it so amazing, and choosing some of you guys who uh, really have made the event so exciting for us. Thanks to you guys, yeah.